Father, that is the commitment of the Apostle Paul as he comes to understand this great debt that has been paid for him and for us who believe. And so the confession of his life is that yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. May that be our confession as well, Lord, as we come to understand the significance of the precious blood of Christ. May it, may it cut with clear power to the deepest parts of our life to help us understand the wonder in the preciousness of Jesus. And may it call us to the to a place of recognizing your true worthiness and our unworthiness. And may it lead us to a life of devotion and worship and obedience and faithfulness to the end. God, there are people in this room and people who are watching on the live stream who do not have this relationship with you. There are those who have never come to the place of recognizing your true worthiness. And I pray, oh God, through this time of looking into your word, may your Holy Spirit have his way in their hearts. Lead us in terms of understanding. Lead us in terms of spiritual awakening. Lead us, oh God, to higher and greater and better things. Things that are eternal and not temporal. Things that are spiritual and not physical. Things that are setting our hopes on the future inheritance in heaven, which is Christ, and not caught up in all of the distractions of this world. Lead us to, gre to greater and deeper faith in the preciousness of the blood of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 20 to 21, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. But as we turn to these two verses, I, I want to just remind us of where we have been. I, I want to remind you of the fact that, that the sentence that we're going to continue and finish today is a sentence that started back in verse 17. Okay, that was two messages ago where we were in verse 17. And continuing to build this flow of thought as we come to this place in verse 20 and 21, picking up and carrying through this great theme of the wonder of your salvation. This great salvation. If you this morning are one who have put your hope and trust in Jesus, if you're one this morning who has bowed the knee before your Savior Jesus Christ, has recognized that He is the only way to salvation, He is the only means of forgiveness, He is the only path for you to find deliverance from sin in this life and a hope for eternal uh, life with God, this morning... You're one who has participated in the great salvation that we're going to be talking about today. But I want to just catch you up and, and help you realize or re, uh, remember where we were last week. We talked about this great salvation in the fact that you cannot purchase your own salvation. It's beyond you. Now, with all the purchasing power on the planet, you could never purchase an eternal work with temporal, perishable things. Silver or gold aren't going to cut it for you. 
It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how prominent. It doesn't matter how popular you might be. You cannot buy your way to God. And just like you can't do it in a physical way, you can't earn your way to God in a spiritual way. There is no way for you to accumulate enough uh, good works on your ledger that are going to outweigh the sin that's on your ledger that demands the redemption price of death. Death and separation from God forever. forever. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. You and I, because of sin in our life, whether it be lying or stealing or adultery or even lustful thoughts, um, disobedience to parents, uh, harsh words to your kids or to your spouse or to your boss, whoever it might be, we, we put it in simple terms last week when we said that sin is anything that you think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes him sad. And because of sin, we deserve separation from God forever. But we saw last week that there was a purchase price that was paid for you. There was a gift that was given to you through precious blood, the blood of Jesus. That precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot. This morning, Peter is going to pick up that theme. He's going to carry it through. He's going to help you to exalt in the preciousness of your Savior. Help you celebrate the wonder of what Jesus accomplished for you. And so as we walk away from this message, the the goal, the the purpose, the, the plan of this is for us to walk away thinking, wow, God's precious gift in Jesus is so amazing. And I want to worship him. And I want to, as the main verb in verse 17 says, I want to conduct my life in reverent fear. I want there to be this quality of my life that, that demonstrates a commitment to worship and fear in a healthy terror of God because of, I know the consequences of sin leading to death and outside of God, I will face the consequences of that sin on my own. For sake of helping to bring the illustration home, the, the message home, I, I want to ask this question. How does the preciousness of Christ then lead to reverent fear? We're just going to start there and just summarize it in a, in a couple of, of illustrations. Imagine with me, you guys are familiar with the story of the, the prodigal son, and you know that in the story of the prodigal son, essentially what he demands is his inheritance, and, and by demanding his inheritance, we, we learned several uh, months ago when Pastor David taught that, that categorically the prodigal son was saying, I wish you were dead. I want you just to liquidate your assets. I want you to give me what's mine, and I want to spend the inheritance that you've been saving up, and I want to spend it on my own pleasures. Now, he did that, and he went away from home. His dad uh, liquidated his assets and, and allowed the prodigal son to, to, to go and, and to do things on his own. There was a point at which, in the story, we find, it says in Luke 15, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
Sin had run its course. The, the, uh, the money had expired. He finds himself in dire straits. He's, he's eaten with the pigs. He finally comes to his senses. God had, had brought him to the end of himself, and he realized the worthiness of his father. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want you to understand that this is kind of describes what, what we were talking about last week in terms of living in reverent fear. It is recognizing the unworthiness of you and recognizing the incredible worthiness of the Father. In our case, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what I want to summarize for us in this point is to, is to recognize that, that living in reverent fear is, is this. It is when He, Jesus, is worthy and I see my unworthiness. When I come to the place of recognizing I don't deserve the great debt that's been paid for me. When, when, I don't, when I come to the place where I recognize that I don't deserve the incredible self-sacrificing love of the Father for me. And when that forgiveness happens, I then live my life in the shadow of the worthiness of the Father and seeking in some way to measure up and to live up to the worthiness of the Father, living in fear, living in fear of, of, of uh, damaging the relationship between the Son and the Father. Imagine another illustration. Imagine a son or a daughter who has decided to live in rebellion, much like the prodigal, has decided to run away from home and to and to squander resources, and to, and to live in sin and rebellion against the Father, to drag his good name through the mud, and to follow out, follow through with the, the passions of their flesh. And, and as a result of the lifestyle they've chosen, the people who they considered friends now become their captor. And those captors now send a ransom note to the father and say, if you want your son or your daughter to return, you must pay a ransom price. The father, in love for this child, decides again, like the, the prodigal father, the father of the prodigal son, to liquidate all of his assets, to, to uh, sell his home, to sell his cars, to, to uh, drain out the 401k, to exhaust the savings account, and to... And to take the wedding ring of his beloved wife and to sell that, to gather enough money to pay this ransom price. And in giving this ransom price to the captor, the child picks up the bag, wraps their arm around the captor and says to their father, Sucker! I'm going to take this and I'm going to run and enjoy the pleasures to the max to fund with the ransom price, the very things they have been purchased away from. You need and I need to fear that kind of lifestyle, that kind of response, that precious payment that had been given, that liquidation of assets and the, the maximum ransom price that had been paid to consider it common and to run right back in 
to the same sin that you've been redeemed from. Be afraid. And that's the other side of the equation. That is to say that I am worthy and he is not, or to put it another way, when he is unworthy and I see myself as worthy. My desires, my interests, my passions are more important. I am going to use the ransom price to pay for my sin rather than recognize the wonder of the price that had been paid and to live in response, in reverent fear. Peter, picking up this topic of redemption in verses 18 and 19, carries this along. And let me, just for the sake of of getting us back into the text, read for us verses 17 to 21, kind of provide some context for our study today. It says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We come to this passage and we, we, we need to understand that the, the main verb is still in verse 17. It is conduct yourselves in fear. That is the overarching theme through the, this entire sentence. But, but here are four ways in this passage that, that helps to elevate the preciousness of Christ and helps to intensify or, or help to highlight the need for us to value that preciousness by considering him worthy. That he is worthy because he is precious. He deserves your conduct that is, that is oriented by reverent fear. These four ways are given to us in four verbs. There are four participles we find in verses 20 and 21. The first two participles are passive participles, which means that, that, that Jesus is the recipient of the action. And then in verse 21, we see two more participles, but Peter transitions his orientation, he transitions his perspective, and he wants you to see that God has now taken an active role in confirming the preciousness of Jesus. Four ways that Jesus is precious that we see in our text today, and because he is precious to God, he must be precious to you. Because he is precious to God, he must be precious to us in our response and how we live in conducting our hearts and our lives in fear. The first of these verbs is found in verse 20 at the very beginning. We find that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown. This points to the preciousness of your Savior, the preciousness of Jesus. We see this in at least three ways that I'm going to try to draw out for us this morning before we move to our next point. I want you to see that the foreknowledge of God points to Christ's eternality, that he is eternal. He's existed before the foundation of the world, that this foreknowing talks about a relationship that God the Father had with God the Son, 
describing the intimacy of the fellowship that they enjoyed long before the world was even created. But before we get there, I want you to to recognize it, and and you can't see it in your translation unless you're using a New King James. The, The New King James says, he indeed was foreordained. Translating a word that's not translated in the ESV, which is the word, behold, pause for a moment and consider the wonder of your Savior, Jesus. Just, it's kind of like the, the sila, the word in the end of the psalm that just says, just stop for a moment. Just pause and reflect upon this truth. Let it settle into your heart. Let it sink in. Take notice. Don't ignore the, the wonder of what's coming. Pay attention because what I'm about to tell you is significant and it must transform the way you act and, and live and respond. It is a signpost that says, wait for a moment. Don't rush through this. Take notice of the work of God. Marvel at this truth. It is an emphatic statement about what is to come. It's this marker of emphasis that we read here in the text. What is so important? Well, he was foreknown. This word foreknown we've seen already in verse 2 of chapter 1. We saw that it meant to know beforehand, to select in advance, to choose beforehand. This deliberative work of God in not only knowing future events and and knowing them before they happen, but deciding what will happen as a result. This sovereign work of God in knowing and predetermining the future. It's often connected with his his sovereign work of election, his choosing purposes. That's exactly what we saw in verses 1 and 2. This elect church, chosen church, foreknown before the foundation of the world by God the Father. But in what way was Jesus foreknown? In what way did God the Father know him beforehand and that Peter is now using this and applying it in this verse? Well, in one way, he's pointing to Jesus' pre-existence. He he wants his readers to understand the eternality of Christ, which points to his distinctiveness, his preciousness. He is far beyond you in the fact that he existed before the world began. The beloved apostle John points to this in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And John picks up the same theme in his letter to the Ephesians in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, that which was from the, from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus existed before the world began. It points to his preciousness. Jesus himself says in John chapter 8, verse 58, speaking about his pre-existence, he says, most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Certainly, this foreknowing helps to indicate the pre-existing ministry and life of God, the Son, Jesus Christ. But it's not independent of verses 20 and 21. There was not just a knowing about who Jesus was in a relationship with him, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But this knowing had a specific orientation, a specific purpose, a specific um, um, reason 
that we find in verses 18 and 19. Redemption was in view. The purchase of this futile body of unbelievers was in view. This purchase price of Christ in knowing that he would come and pay with precious blood, that was in view. This foreknowing of Christ's redeeming death, which corresponds to God's electing foreknowledge so that God knew his son Jesus knew the redemption plan from start to finish, knew the solution, and knew the people who would be called into that rescue operation. Foreknowledge of God elevates the preciousness of Jesus. But it also points to his obedience, the obedience of Christ. Here I'm thinking of what Jesus had to do in this foreknowing plan to accomplish redemption for his people in order to pay that purchase price, to to be the spotless lamb of God, to be perfect in every way, to shed blood. How does blood get shed by God who is spirit? Well, it demanded obedience of Christ. It demanded that Jesus become a man. It demanded that Jesus come and serve and to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It demanded that Jesus would meet and fulfill all of the standards of the law, fulfill them in every way. It demanded, as Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8, demanded obedience and humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let this truth sink in. The eternal Son of God, existing before the foundation of the world, took on the form of a servant, creator becoming created in terms of being born from a human mommy coming in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, humbling himself to the will of the Father and subjecting himself to the torture of death on a cross, serving his creation by giving his life. The eternal Son laid everything down for the sake of obedience to the Father. The eternal Son also fulfills all the demands of the law. He says in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And in fulfilling the law, he becomes righteousness, the righteousness of God that we can experience through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I can experience no condemnation because of righteousness of Christ paying the purchase price for us. We see his eternality. We see his obedience, but foreknowledge also points to Jesus' uniqueness. His uniqueness. Throughout the ages, after Adam and Eve's sin, many would seek to live in devotion to God. 
They would seek to fulfill the, the standards that God had, had set out. They would, they would seek to, to worship God in, in a way that, that showed the, the true reverence that he deserved. The patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses himself, and Aaron, who sought to lead the people and, and follow faithfully the law that had been set before them, the priests, the prophets, the kings, and the people who sought to worship God through the temple, the sacrifices, through obedience to the law. But at every point, every person in history failed to complete the, the perfect picture, the, the, the true devotion that God was due, they could not fulfill. There would be need for another sacrifice. There would be need for another life. There would be need for another perfect lamb. Jesus was that unique and only once for all lamb that we find in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest on the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Once for all, through the sacrifice of Jesus. And notice, in this verse, the culmination of all the things that had come before are met and fulfilled in Christ, who is the high priest, who is the perfect tent, which, by the way, is the word tabernacle. He is the perfect place of worship. He is the one who, who entered once for all into the Holy of Holies as the high priest to offer a sacrifice that would be good for all people in all time who put their faith in Jesus. One death, one single plan of redemption, one true way and true life through Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know Jesus? Do you recognize as God has established the uniqueness of Jesus? Do you, have you come to the place of recognizing his preciousness and his, his uniqueness that is established because of the foreknowing God who, who established and in, in planned for him to be the redemption for you? He was foreknown. We find this next verb, he was manifest, which also helps to elevate the preciousness of Christ. He was known before the foundation of the world, but he was also manifest to you. This perfect plan was put in motion. It was put in motion through the only one who could carry it through, through Jesus himself. Notice, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. To be manifest is to be disclosed, to be revealed, to, to put on display. God revealed himself in fullness through his son, Jesus. He revealed himself through Jesus' words, through Jesus' miracles, through Jesus' life and ministry, through his character and how he, how he engaged the people of the day. All that Jesus did was done in expression and reflection of God the Father. God revealed himself to his people through his son, Jesus. Revealed in fullness. God did not remain hidden. 
that truth alone should astound us. That God did not remain secluded. He did not remain in heaven. He sent his son to earth in a personal, intimate way so that he could be known and manifest for you. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. John says we touched him. We heard him. We saw him. We lived with him. We, we got to see everything about Jesus. He was real and physical. We got to know him intimately because of spending time with him. He manifested himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We find throughout the scripture the evidence of, of God's manifesting work, manifesting himself to the people in the first century but manifesting himself in a way so that not only those who got to see him in a physical way got to experience him in an eternal way. Those who we find in this passage, in uh, was it uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where it says, though you don't see him, you love him. Though you've never encountered him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. You don't have to see him to know him. That's the point. And Paul says in Romans chapter 16, we're going to skip over these couple of verses. Romans 16, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, by the way, before the foundation of the world. That's what he's getting at. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, here it is, has been made known, same word, same tense, same voice, has been made known to all the nations, not just to those who saw him, touched him, heard him, experienced him, but you who believe can experience all the nations. Jesus came to manifest the, the nature of the gospel, redemption story to any who would believe in him. That is precious. The preciousness of God showing up in the Son so that we can experience Him personally. Christ's preciousness is revealed through foreknowledge. It's revealed through the manifestation of His Son, Jesus, coming. But now we come to verse 21 and we see the confirming work of God the Father. The perspective now begins to change where, where Jesus is not just the passive participant in this story. God has, or Peter has turned the perspective to, to point to God's active work in Jesus to confirm this redemption price that was paid. We see in verse 21, God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him from the dead. We see that verse 21, who through him, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. God raised him up, resurrected him, and through that work confirmed that the sacrifice was accepted. Confirmed the preciousness of the blood. Confirmed the once for all sacrifice given to us through Christ. Confirmed that Jesus is approved. His sacrifice for us was accepted in every way. Righteousness is complete. Ransom is paid. Salvation is available in Jesus. The resurrection underscores the preciousness of Christ as the only means of salvation. Acts 4.12 says as much, and there is 
salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The resurrection proved that God the Father accepted the payment price, the ransom price of his son Jesus. That precious blood was given and accepted. And through Jesus alone, through faith in Christ alone, we can, ex- we can receive and enjoy and experience saving work of Christ, his ransom price, freeing us from sin and freeing us to relationship with God. The Apostle Paul wants to elevate the significance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14, 17, and 19, when he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And if Christ, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus' resurrection is essential for living hope. We saw that in verse 3. We have living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without resurrection, there is no looking forward. There's only looking backward to a, a, a tomb occupied by a dead body. But because that that tomb is empty, we can look forward to resurrection, living hope in Christ in heaven. It was essential to show the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice. We also see that in the resurrection, we get to enjoy newness of life for ourselves. The resurrection provides newness of life for us. One commentator puts it this way, and I quote, God's redemption breaks not only the chain that binds us to a future doom, it breaks also the chain of the dead past. We are redeemed from the meaninglessness of a pagan life. End quote. As we look back to verse 18, we see the futility of the life before. We see the futility and emptiness of those those, um, family traditions that only ended in bankruptcy and separation from God. But because of Christ, you have been redeemed. So conduct yourselves in fear. Live in such a way that shows the power of the Spirit in you, the Holy One who has called you to holiness. You can be holy because of the Spirit who is active in your life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Resurrection power, the living work of of Jesus Christ has created newness of life for those who have also experienced the death of Christ can now enjoy the resurrection life, the newness of life that his resurrection gives. And finally, we find in verse 21 that God gave him glory. God gave Jesus glory. He he resurrected him, but he also gave him glory. He helped to establish that he is worthy. Peter just can't seem to let this topic go. He, He promotes the glory of God throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter. 1, 7 says, 
you may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 11 says, The Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. 124 says, The glory of man is like the flower of the grass. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, That they may see all your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We could go to chapter 4, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 13, 4, 14, 4, 16, 5, 1, 5, 4, 5, 10, 5, 11 is where it all culminates. It says, to him be glory forever. The preciousness of Christ was established by restored glory. The glory that he had before the world existed was the glory that he'd been restored to because the preciousness of the blood of Christ which makes us now recognize since God the Father declares that His Son is precious, must we not declare the same? It leads us to our final question. How can you experience the preciousness of Christ? And I might ask this question a different way. Not how can you experience the preciousness of Christ, but how can you confirm the preciousness that God the Father has also confirmed. Because if you do not confirm the preciousness of Christ, there is fear for you, fear of judgment for you, fear of judgment for me. Why was all of this accomplished in Christ? Well, Peter says in verse 20, look at this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Now, if you're paying attention at all to culture and you're reading some of the books that are available in our contemporary culture, many of the songs that you listen to on Christian radio, they will take this statement that the purchase price, the redemption of Jesus for you elevates the value that you bring to the table, your worthiness. And I want you to know, if you don't take anything away from this morning's message, I want you to understand that is anathema. That is heresy. Jesus did not come to establish your worthiness, but to set uh, um, categorically before the heavens and before the earth that he alone is worthy. Notice it says, for the sake of you, but don't read your worthiness into this statement. Don't see your value. This is not meant to emphasize the, sur- the surpassing worthiness of you, but the surpassing preciousness of Christ. That in the midst of your and my rebellion, in the midst of your and my wickedness, in the midst of, of our running away from God, being enemies of God, that he instead, in spite of our wickedness, decided to set his affection on us, see his worthiness. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5, 7 and 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We recognize that we don't even put our lives down for righteous people. 
That's our character. But God's character, the preciousness of Christ, is confirmed through his sacrifice to enemies who were opposed to him in every way. It exalts the worthiness of God, not the worthiness of you. So how do we respond? How do we demonstrate and confirm his worthiness, his preciousness? Two ways. First, you must believe in God. And second, you must hope in God. You must believe in God, and you must hope in God. We find that at the beginning of verse 21, it says, who through him are believers in God. And then at the end, it says, so that your faith and hope are in God. Really, this is faith in action. Faith is believing in God for the present. Hope is believing in God for the future. Believing that what God has said, he will fulfill. That he will make good on his promises. And I love how Peter comes around full circle now. He says that your faith and hope are in God, which he called us to at the very beginning of these commands. He's he's exhorting us, hope in God. In verse 13, set your hope fully on grace. Recognize what has been purchased for you because of Christ's great gift of salvation and focus on that. Let that be the the ever-waking, ever-present orientation of your life, the perspective that you bring. Hope in God. Uh, This morning, as I was driving here with my youngest daughter, it's always a joy because she is a, a mighty prayer. And so she's always praying for you. She's praying for this service and just an encouragement uh, as she's lifting you up before the throne. But she, after she finished this morning, she asked me a question. So, Daddy, how are you doing? And quite honestly, this morning, I'm a, I was a little stressed out on the drive here. A lot of reasons. But the, the primary reason I was stressed out is because our van is in Centerville, which is about 60 miles away. And I'm trying to figure out how in the world am I going to fix that hunk of junk over there in Centerville and get it back home. Here I am stressing about physical things that really don't amount to anything. And she turned to me and said, Dad, trust in God. Trust in God. It's as simple as that. When you're encountering challenges in your day, when crisis meets you, Do you show and exalt the preciousness of Christ by trusting in God, hoping in Him, orienting your affection to things that are eternal, not things that are temporal? Let's pray. That is our desire, O God, to trust you, not only in the big things of salvation, you have proven yourself to pay the purchase price and to make way for freedom and salvation and deliverance through Jesus. But in taking care of the most important thing, you establish that you're able to take care of all the secondary things of life. Oh God, may the expression of our life prove out the preciousness of Christ to us not only through reverent fear, but through constant faith and hope and trust in you. 
And may we gather, may we be the, the catalyst for the nations coming to faith in you because of the work of your son Jesus and the proclamation of the testimony of your spirit through our lives, transforming us from one degree of glory to the other. May you be praised because you deserve all the glory forevermore. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.